All right, brothers and sisters, let's take out our Bibles together. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to grab one on the pew in front of you and look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is where we'll be today. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3 here in just a moment. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if you remember last week, last week we talked all about how we all need to be reminded again and again, all the time, over and over, of the gospel. Well, guess what this week's sermon's about? The gospel. We're going to be reminded once more, but I guarantee it's not going to be the same as last week's sermon. Now, New Testament scholar, one of my favorite New Testament scholars actually, D.A. Carson once observed that it only takes two generations, really, to lose the gospel entirely in a church or in a family. Two generations, that's, that's it, to lose the gospel entirely. How does that happen? Well, one generation assumes the gospel, and the next generation walks away from it. One generation assumes it. What he means by assumes is you just take it for granted. We think our kids and the next generation, they're just going to, by default, believe what we believe. They're just going to fall into it. And so we assume it. We don't give ample attention to it. We don't rehearse it. We don't preach on it. We don't teach on it. We don't talk about it explicitly, not just in church, but in our lives. You just assume it. And then our, our kids growing up behind us, they're just going to get it. They're just going to believe what we believe because that's what we've always believed. And I believe what my parents believe. It only takes two, two generations before you lose it if one generation assumes it. And so if we want our kids, if we want the next generation of this church to walk in the gospel to proclaim it, to hold fast to it, to not start distorting it, to not start walking away from it, then, brothers and sisters, we must be clear on it. We must not assume that they will believe what we do just because they are in our families. We must teach it. We must rehearse it. We must remind one another of it time and time again. In light of that, we come to our text today. Paul's words to us, God's word to us through the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3. I'll read down to verse 11. Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now this morning, you'll notice from our text that a big part of it is the resurrection. We're not going to be spending a bunch of time on the resurrection today, because if you look forward in this chapter... 
We're preaching verse by verse through the book of 1 Corinthians. You look forward in chapter 15, we're about to spend three or four weeks in a row on the resurrection. Next week's going to start kind of a series on the resurrection because that's all chapter 15 is about. And so we're not going to be spending a bunch of time on the resurrection today, but I want you to notice one thing here. In verses 3 and 4, the gospel includes the resurrection. The gospel includes the resurrection. How many times when we as Christians think about the gospel, what we think of is the death of Christ. We think of what happened on the cross. Jesus died for our sins, but we leave it there. The gospel includes the resurrection. There's no salvation without the resurrection. There's no vindication of who Jesus is. Jesus is God's chosen servant to die for the sins of the world without the resurrection. There's no vindication of his message and everything that he said about who he was, about who God is, about this world, without the resurrection. And so, brothers and sisters, we have to remember, as we talk about the gospel, as we think about the gospel, the resurrection is just as much a part of the gospel as the death of Jesus is. In the coming weeks, we're going to see all the implications that come out of the resurrection, as Paul states here in chapter 15. But today, I simply want us to remember that. The gospel includes the resurrection. But notice... And here we get into our points of the sermon today. Notice in verse 3 how Paul says about the gospel that it is of first importance. He delivered the gospel as of first importance. The gospel is the center of our faith. The center of our faith. It's the reason we're here this morning. We come in the name of Jesus, washed by the blood of Jesus, extending salvation in Christ to any who would lay themselves upon Him and His blood. It's the center of our faith. This is up there with the most important truths that we believe. If you remember a few weeks ago, we were talking about spiritual gifts, and we made mention of the fact that something like spiritual gifts are what we might call open-handed issues or second-order issues. They're issues in the church that we can disagree on while still having fellowship with one another. Issues in the church that if you disagree on this church's stance on spiritual gifts, you can still be a member of this church and still have fellowship with everyone in this church. And we can do that together while having those differences. Some things in the Bible are like that. But other things in Scripture are first order issues. They're of first importance. We cannot disagree on these. We cannot budge on these. We cannot, as a church, call someone a Christian if they disagree with this. This gospel that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried and He was raised in accordance with the Scriptures. We believe these things. We stand on these things. This is who we are. This is what we proclaim. This is our life. Jesus died for the sins of the world. He was buried. He was literally raised from the dead. And he, re- he ascended up into heaven. And before he did so, he appeared to all kinds of people. People saw him. And notice how it says, in accordance with the Scriptures, twice in verses 3 and verse 4. What that means is, brothers and sisters, we believe that the Bible is the key to knowing all of this. The Bible is how we know this. The Bible is the key to all of these truths. We believe that the Bible is reliable and trustworthy in its account of these events. Everything that the Bible says 
about Jesus and about His death. Everything that the Bible says about anything is true because it is God's Word. This gospel is in accordance with the Scriptures. This, this Word of God is how we know the gospel. This Word of God is how we come to believe the gospel. This verse right here on the front of the pulpit, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. And so we believe these things because the gospel is of first importance. It is central to our lives. But what about the gospel is it? What's in the gospel? Well, in verse 3, Paul says, Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. Now, what does this actually mean? What does it actually mean that Jesus died for our sins? Well, it means He took the punishment that we deserve. There's more happening at the cross than just a brave man being nailed and having his life taken away from him by Roman soldiers. There's more happening than just that. You can tell there's more happening because of what happened around it. The sky was darkened. There was an earthquake. Right? The, temple in the, the curtain in the temple was torn in two when Jesus breathed His last. There was more going on than just a man dying. There was more going on than just Jesus showing you how much He loves you because He's willing to be killed by Romans. There's a spiritual aspect at the cross. Jesus took our sin upon Himself. And as He was on the cross, God poured out His wrath on Jesus as if He had committed all those sins. The sinless one, the one who had never sinned, was treated by God as if He had committed all of those sins. And this means Jesus had to endure the wrath of God for the sins of the whole world. It was awful what happened to him physically. I mean, think about it. He was beaten within an inch of his life before he even got to the cross. As he got to the cross, they nailed him to it. As they nail him to it, they were experts in putting someone to death in this manner. The way that they put someone to death in this manner was they stretched you out so far that it was so hard to breathe. And as you were hanging up on that cross, you had to push up on the nail on your feet pull up on the nails on your hands so that you could open your lungs and get a breath and then you'd have to release. And you'd go back and forth like that for hours. And that's what would eventually kill someone. Asphyxiation. But that's not the worst thing that was happening to Jesus. The worst thing that was happening to Jesus on the cross was the wrath of God being poured out on Him for the sins of the world. He endured the wrath of God. Have you ever noticed... In Christianity and in church, how men, especially really rugged and tough men, have a hard time resonating with Christianity. You ever notice this? They just have a tough time resonating with church and Christianity. I mean, think about it. Part of it is we're we're always talking about Jesus in such flowery language. And I'm sure the ladies love it, but when I was growing up, I, I couldn't get over how often people would refer to Jesus as precious, right? Precious is the way we talk about our babies, right? These babies are so precious. Babies are cute. They're they're fragile. They're precious. And then I would hear somebody call Jesus precious, and I would be like, I don't know know if Jesus is precious like that. Now I get it, right? Precious metals. Jesus is, I get that, right? But as guys, we, we don't really resonate with that kind of language. Jesus is cute. He's precious. Does that even make sense? And it's in the songs that we sing. Think about a song that we've sang for years and years and years. 
I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. This is already really cute, right? And we, we walk and we talk and we share this intimate moment together. And then the little birds, the cute little birds, they hush their singing. And the guys are sitting there like, what do you got for us? Like, what in the world? But notice this. Men, think about this. Jesus was the toughest dude that ever lived. He was the toughest dude that ever lived. How do we know that? The cross. The cross. Because he endured the wrath of God. He endured for hours what would have broken us in a matter of seconds. In fact, when you really think about it, Jesus endured on the cross the equivalent of an eternity in hell. Think about it. He took what was owed to us. He took what we should have received. On the cross, He endured the equivalent of an eternity in hell. Now, how could anyone endure that in a finite period of time? Well, only if He is not just a human being, but an infinite being. Enduring an infinite amount of punishment in a finite period of time. He endured the equivalent of an eternity in hell, and He endured it and refused to come down. When He was on the cross, He refused to stop. He refused to make it stop. He refused to have angels deliver Him from it all. He refused to to completely destroy the people who were cursing Him in front of Him. He refused. He took it. He bore it the whole time. He endured it as He refused to come down, even though He could. And at the end... When the soldiers came to take the bodies down off the cross, they had to break the legs of the other two. Break the legs. Why? Well, because they might have been like unconscious, but they still had a little bit of life in them. They had to make sure that they died when they took them down from the cross. But they come to Jesus, and what does it say? They didn't break his legs because he was already dead, because he was completely spent. Completely spent. He had nothing left to give. Christ died for our sins. And He didn't just die for the sins of the world. He died for your sins. You ever think about that? Not just the sins of the world. He died for your sins. He died for everything that you've ever done to rebel against Him. He died for every act you've ever committed that you are ashamed about now. Every evil thought, every selfish and sinful desire, Jesus died for those sins. And you might look at me and you say, I I get that He died for the sins of the world, but you don't know how sinful I am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how dark my heart is. And you're right, I don't. I don't know how sinful any of you are, really but I know what the Bible says about Jesus' death. The Bible says Jesus' death is more powerful than all the sin you've got to throw at it. That Jesus' blood is more powerful than the worst thing you've ever done, all the worst things you've ever done, all the worst things anyone has ever done. You can't out the power of Jesus' death. You can't out the power of Jesus' blood to wash you clean. It's a form of arrogance to think that you are too sinful for Jesus' blood to wash you clean. 
We say there's never been anyone so righteous that they didn't need Christ to save them. But on the other hand, there's never been anyone so sinful that Jesus' death couldn't save them. We all need forgiveness. You need forgiveness. You know you do. We know we need God's forgiveness. You know your sins. You know your sinful deeds, your sinful thoughts, your sinful attitudes, your sinful longings. Only Christ can take away those sins. Only Christ can wash you clean. Only Christ can give you a clear conscience before God. You want that? A clear conscience before the Lord. That's worth more than anything this world has to offer, in my opinion. That is worth more than anything in this world. A clear conscience before the holy, righteous, perfect God whom I'm going to stand before at the judgment. Only Christ can give you a clear conscience. Paul had a clear conscience. The Apostle Paul had a clear conscience before the Lord. And it wasn't because he was sinless. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 in our text. Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. This Apostle Paul who's writing this, before he became a Christian... He was going around dragging people out of their homes to throw them in jail for believing in Jesus. Acts chapter 7 says, He stood and gave his approval as Stephen was stoned for his faith. Stephen was put to death for his faith in Jesus Christ. And before they got ready to throw their stones, they took off their outer cloak because you need to have athletic movement when you stone somebody. And they laid their cloaks down at the foot of this man who wrote 1 Corinthians he later became a Christian because Jesus grabbed him by the collar of his shirt and said, you're going to follow me. And he saw his glory and he couldn't do anything else. Paul says, I persecuted the church of God. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. But what's he say in verse 10? Verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I know what I did, I know what I was, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now what does that mean? Let's let's ask that question of ourselves. If you are in Christ this morning, if you are in Christ, if you've given your life to Jesus, what are you by the grace of God? What am I by the grace of God today? Well, we could go on this probably all day, but let me just give you two. I am forgiven. By the grace of God, I am forgiven. I am what I am. My past is my past. I will not shrink from it. I'm not going to shrink from my past because I don't have to shrink from it. I don't have to be embarrassed about my past. Proclaiming my past and what God saved me from gives Him more glory. Right? By the grace of God, I am what I am. Before Christ, John Davis, I was a foul-mouthed, lustful, angry, conceited, prideful, judgmental, legalistic young man. And I was all of those things. And I was them full force. And God saved me from that. God saved me from what I was. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And I'm not going to shy away from what I was. I'm not going to shy away from what I was because the Bible tells us no accusation against God's children will stick. Listen to these words from Romans 8, starting in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul's asking some rhetorical questions there. Who's going to condemn us if we're in Christ? Jesus died for us. You can't condemn someone that Jesus died for. No accusation against God's children is going to stick. If you are in Christ, picture this. In Revelation, Satan is, a, it's, is called the accuser. That's his nickname, so to speak, in Revelation. The accuser, right? And Satan, as we know from the beginning of the book of Job, every now and then, apparently, he can come before God. God allows Satan to come before him every now and then. Well, if Satan comes before the Lord, and Satan brings his accusations, and he says, God, I've got all kinds of dirt on John Davis. All kinds. He's, he's done this. He's done that. He's done this. He's done that. He's thought this. He's wanted to do that. He did that, and he doesn't think anybody else knows about it. He's done this, 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 right? Got all kinds of accusations against John Davis. He does not deserve your love. He does not deserve a place in your kingdom. And God says, all true. Everything you said was true. But then he turns to Jesus, and he says, Jesus. You see, Jesus has still got scars. And Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding for us with his scars. Why? Because he, he died for all of that. And so when, when Jesus shows Satan the scars, God says to Satan, John Davis is mine. So get out. There's no accusation that's going to stick. I don't have to be ashamed of anything I've ever done. God has taken care of it all in Christ. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I am forgiven. And by the grace of God, I am not just forgiven. I am a son of God. My favorite verse in all the Bible is 1 John 3.1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. How great is His love. He has lavished it on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. God has adopted us into His family. If you are in Christ today, only if you are in Christ. I can't say this about everyone. If you are in Christ today, God has adopted you into His family. And now you are just as much a son or daughter, an heir, as a natural son or daughter. We know about adoption, right? In a good family, good parents who adopt a child, a good adoption should be treated just as a natural biological child, right? That child is just as much of a child of the family as a biological child is. So the inheritance, the, the, the love, the, the provision, everything, they, they get just as much as a biological child would get. I've been adopted into God's family by the grace of God, rebellious John Davis, adopted into his family, and now he calls me his son. And I can rightly, and it's not presumption, it's not arrogance, I can rightly call him my father. My father. By the grace of God, I am who I am. By the grace of God, we are who we are. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses is talking to God through a burning bush. God is talking to Moses, and God is presenting himself as a burning bush, talking to Moses. Moses has a conversation with God, and God says, Moses, you're my chosen instrument. You're going to go to Pharaoh in Egypt. You're going to say, the Lord says, let his people go. 
And then Moses says, but, but what should I tell them your name is? Because presumably they, they, they worship all kinds of gods in Egypt, so they might be like, Who, what god said that? What should I tell them your name is God? And in one of the most astounding passages in all of Scripture, God tells Moses his name. He says, my name is I am. I am who I am. That is my name. That's God's name. Well, by the grace of God, I am who I am. I am what I am by the grace of God. That doesn't mean I'm anything like God in that way. God is the self-existent one. I am who I am. None of us have any claim on anything like that. But here Paul is telling us that his identity is not found in his sins. His identity is found in who he is in Christ and in God. His identity is found in the Lord, not in what he has done. And so, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ today, you are not your sin. That's not where your identity is. You are not your past. That is not where your identity lies. And you are not your desires. The world will tell you that is where your identity lies, and it is not. You are not your sin. You are not your past. You are not your desires. You find your identity in God. You find your identity in the great I am. By the grace of the great I am, we are who we are. John Newton, the man who wrote the song Amazing Grace, was once a slave trader, captain of a slave ship. Apparently, from what we read of history, he was about as foul-mouthed and as foul-minded as it got. But he became a Christian, and his life completely changed. God saved him from that. And John Newton once wrote, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I might be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be, but I am not what I once was, a child of sin and slave of the devil. I think I can truly say with the apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I am forgiven. I am a son of God. And by the grace of God, I am a worker for the Lord. Look at what Paul says at the end of verse 10. He says, I worked harder than any of them. Yet it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. A worker for the Lord. Now, I don't think this is pride coming out in Paul here. Initially, it seems like that when we read it, right? Paul's showing off. I worked harder than any of them. I don't think this is actually pride. When you look at it objectively, you compare Paul to all the other apostles. He did work harder than all of them. He gave his life. He gave every ounce of energy he had. He gave more than we would ever consider possible. Read 2 Corinthians verse, or chapter 11 one time just to see all of the ways that Paul gave of himself for the gospel and for the work of the kingdom. But it wasn't his willpower. It wasn't his strength. It was God working in him. It wasn't him. It was the grace of God that was with him. Brothers and sisters, there's work to be done for the Lord. There is work to be done for the Lord. Yes, there are things to be believed. Yes, there are things for us to know. But there are also things for us to get up off our rear ends and go do for the kingdom of God. We are not called to bide our time until we can finally escape this sin-infested world. 
We are not called to bide our time, to play it safe. No, we are soldiers behind enemy lines with a mission. A mission to not just make it through and hold fast ourselves, but to help others, to save others from the fire. Or think about it in terms of sports. It's the fourth quarter. Wouldn't you rather be in the game, leaving it all out on the field, than on the bench just watching to see what happens? Wouldn't we rather be in the game, just leave it all out on the field? All I can do on the bench is just passively watch and see what happens. I don't want to be there. We're not working in the flesh, though. There's work to be done, but we're not working in the flesh. We are not doing this of our own power. We are not doing this in our own strength. We're not going to be those people who get up at 5 a.m. and put two hours of work in before everyone else gets up, and then we shame everyone else when they get up because they weren't up as early as us. Right? It's not us. We're not doing this in our own power, our own strength, our own pride. Our work comes from God's grace. It's an overflow of the grace He's given to us. Hear this. We don't work to earn God's favor. We work because we already have it and we don't deserve it. We don't work for the Lord because we want to earn His favor. We work because in Christ we already have it and we don't deserve it. And so we want to please Him. We want to work for a God who saved us by His grace. For a God who saved me and I know the darkness of my heart. I know that I don't deserve this. I know He shouldn't have saved me. I want to work for a God like that. I want to do things for His kingdom. I want to help other people come know a God like that because it seems too good to be true and it's not. Other people can find this. Other people can experience this. You can experience this today if you've never experienced peace with God, forgiveness of your sins, a clear conscience before the Lord. You might feel like it's too good to be true because you know the darkness of your heart. I know how that feels. It's not too good to be true. It's the greatest truth in all the world. We want to work for the Lord because of His grace. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12.15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Spend and be spent. So what we want is we want to work for the Lord. We want to work for the souls of others. And at the end of our lives, nothing left. I don't have anything left to give. I'm done. My body's given out. It's time to go home. It's time to go to the Lord. It's time to rest in paradise. Right? Jesus gave all until he had nothing left. He was completely spent. Paul was spending and being spent for the Lord and for the glory of God and for the souls of others. Will we do the same, brothers and sisters? Right now, we're going to spend just a few moments in silent prayer and reflection on what we just heard. This is a time of response. Usually we think of the the invitation time as the time of response, but this right here is the time of response. This is a time for everyone to respond. We're asking every single person right now in silent prayer to respond to the Lord and what He has just laid on your heart. After we respond to the Lord in a few moments of silent prayer, privately, we'll come back, we'll have a time of public response for anyone who needs to respond in that way. Let's pray together.